Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new podcast episode of the Pharma Launch Secret Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Matthew Goodman. Matthew is the current medical director and principal at Lucent Biopharma. And during his 20-year career in the medical profession, Matthew has gone from working as a surgical trainee in the NHS to being a medical director, chief medical officer, and CEO of companies like MapMyHealth, Lux Health and Xylem Medical, an organization where he worked at for over 10 years. I had a pleasure also of meeting Matt back at our early days at Novartis many years ago when we worked in the area of diabetes. Matthew, welcome to this podcast episode. And did I forget anything? No, no, just thank you for having me. It's, it's really good to be here and good to see you again. And uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. So let's dive in. Matthew, let's talk a little bit the focuses, of course, on the product uh, launches. So let's start a little bit broad. When you compare how launches were done, let's say five years ago, and how launches are done today, what do you see as some, some of the biggest changes in the market? The major change I've, I've seen in the last five years has got to be the rise of digital and omni-channel in terms of launches. If we go back five years ago, I think the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, was still maybe 10, 15 years behind other industries in terms of its digital footprint and its digital capabilities. We knew we had to catch up. Businesses were working very hard to put in place omni-channel capabilities to support their field force and their marketing departments. And then suddenly we had lockdown and the COVID crisis and the acceleration of investment, the acceleration in effort in putting in place omni-channel was you know, breathtaking. And we, we caught up a huge amount. And now we have launches which are being based around omnichannel approaches. People are moving away from thinking about digital as a channel that has added on to their launch, but more about how an omnichannel approach supports a launch overall. And seeing that happen over five years is, or over the last two or three years really, has been really breathtaking. In England, we have a phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And it means when you really need to get something done, people can become very creative creative and, and, and really solve issues very, very fast. And I think what we saw with lockdowns is that the omni-channel problem started to get solved very, very fast when we were moving from being a long way behind the curve with other industries. I think there's still a long way to go, but if I had to, to point at one major differentiator over the last five years, it would have been the last two or three years, and that's omni-channel. Yeah, thanks for that. I heard somewhere when I was uh, going deeper into the topic of innovation that to think out of the box actually you have to define the box. So when you define the box and define those constraints, that's when the real innovation happened because we're kind of forced to think on finding ways. And as you said, after the lockdown has happened, also pharma's over-reliance on, on some of the in-person channel was clearly visible. And then omni-channel has accelerated. It's definitely one of the top words that I'm hearing this year. I was first at first in-person conference recently after two years, and omni-channel was just a word that kind of connected medical, commercial, and digital rooms where <laughs> sessions were happening. I was like, okay, if there's one word that connects, it's that one. Let's talk a little bit about 
medical affairs. I mean, you, you have a deep experience in that area and functional area of launches and medical affairs are uh, importance has been growing for years. And there are so many things that are happening within that function two to three years before the launch from key opinion leaders identification and working with the right key opinion leaders to a disease state education for patients and physicians, ad boards, scientific communication, scientific publication, MSL. So the very big question is how can medical affairs be differentiating factor and mean a difference between, you know, potentially failed launches, which is about half of the launches and successful launches. And where do you see the biggest leverage points when it comes to medical affairs? It might help me just to reflect on my background in medical affairs. And that started nearly 20 years ago as a medical advisor in a UK affiliate of a large pharma. And at the time, medical affairs was very much a support function. Um, we were seen as being an arm of the marketing department. And our primary responsibility was to make sure the marketing materials were approved and certified in the right way. But even back then, people were talking about ways in which medical affairs could break out of that support role. How could medical affairs become more valuable? Because it's, it's an expensive department and there's a lot of bright people working there. So how does medical affairs evolve beyond just this support department? And that conversation has never let up for the last 20 years. Every time we talk about medical affairs, we talk about how does medical affairs maximize its benefit to the organizations and the departments they work in. One of the really interesting reflections on medical affairs, and I think I, I heard this best described by a shared colleague of ours, Amit Nathwani, is that medical affairs departments vary radically between different organizations and that if you step into the major pharmaceutical companies and look at their R&D departments and their marketing and commercial departments they will look quite familiar between businesses but between businesses in medical affairs you have a very heterogeneous group of departments working in different ways different people different sets of motivations different priorities and the key common differentiator between medical affairs is that they're all trying to figure out at the moment how they evolve into medical affairs 2.0 as in how do they move out of the support role and the support function into a leadership role and this has been captured by many white papers from some of the industry thought leaders over the last five years um, it's one of these things that gets talked about a lot question is is it actually happening on the ground the reality will always lag the aspiration right i think we're probably many years behind where we would like to be right now you asked me how medical affairs can really differentiate, and, and I've written quite widely on this. You'll have read some of my posts on LinkedIn. And for the purposes of today and the brevity of the discussion, it, it really comes down to the people and finding people within medical affairs who really want to take leadership roles, both in terms of driving the commercialization and the science behind the products they work in, but taking leadership roles within the organization as well. And the medical affairs departments that I've seen, which are truly differentiated and truly bringing value, are uniquely staffed by people who are really keen to get things done. They're not waiting to be told by the marketing department how they fit in. They're taking a leadership role and really driving the business, not just supporting it. I think there's a piece here about when medical affairs gets involved as well. And you mentioned the three-year lead up to launch. And for me, medical affairs departments that bring the most value are the ones that have been involved the longest. And I've been involved with medical affairs departments that didn't come into being until six months prior to launch. But I've also seen medical affairs departments start to emerge around the end of phase two, which is really exciting. You can have a, a five-year run at this. And one of the other common themes, along with 
the staffing and the people is is the point at which medical affairs gets involved. And you can build some really, really outstanding medical affairs capabilities if you can put in place the right people at the right point, and that is very motivated leaders in the medical affairs realm, but as soon as possible, and sometimes as early as phase two. Yeah, no, great points. And I, I was thinking it's also, when you say people, it also a big part of is that leadership, right? And I also noticed there are differences between how kind of progressive the chief medical officer is. So I've seen that in my career, you can have like radically different personalities, even at the helm, like speaking very honestly, you can have someone who spent 20, 30 years in medical affairs and sees it very traditionally, right? It used to be like phase four studies and traditional way of doing all of these parts of medical affairs. And then you have someone who is like saying, well, real world evidence, that's like a huge differentiating factor for pharma companies, both for, you know, continuously demonstrating value, and for knowing or know about our products and patients and using omnichannel and doing everything more like digitally. And that also trickles down, right? Where people feel that permission to be more innovative, to take bolder moves, which I know you and I would want that to happen more and more in medical affairs, but to take bold moves, what, you know, McKinsey described in, in their vision for medical affairs in 2025 and what it can be and go away from oh, you know, we're nobody's, we don't know, we're nobody's baby, we are not commercials, not R&D, but going from being more empowered and really taking that, stepping up to the role. Are there any specifics? So if we go deeper into some of the topics that I know are dear and dear to your heart, so topic of MSLs, it's always a, an interesting topic, especially now after COVID, uh, reps do have much lower access to doctors. MSL seem to have pretty solid access still, whether it's in-person or digital. And there is a whole modernization of the way they work. And there are a lot of discussions of how their role fits into the post-COVID world. So I would love to hear your thoughts on MSLs as and what their role is in the context of uh, product launches and how do you think that that function will evolve? The MSL function, the field medical function in any company for me is a core part of the medical affairs team. And just reflecting on my previous answer about how medical affairs departments can be heterogeneous between companies, where MSL teams work best is where they are a part of the medical affairs team and not considered to be either a separate department or some sort of peripheral satellite to medical affairs, but a core part of the team. They are the eyes and the ears on the ground of the medical affairs team. I'm always slightly disappointed that it feels the future of MSLs rests on the decreasing popularity of larger sales forces and that they are in some way a replacement. Firstly, because the value of MSLs is so huge that they don't need to be a replacement for anybody and it's a completely different team. But also because sometimes it feels like the organization sees an MSL as being able to compensate for the access problem that some of the commercial and the sales teams have. And that would be to undersell the capabilities of, of the MSL force. I think the future of MSLs, of course, is very bright. And along the same lines as where we see medical affairs, I would very much like to see MSLs staking a claim to the center ground of bringing medicines to market. True leadership, scientific excellence, commercial acumen as well, which is an area which we don't really like to talk about with MSLs, but it's always the elephant in the room about how the MSL and the scientific team can also help achieve commercial objectives. 
along with the rise of medical affairs, the rise of the MSL team is, is going to be critical for the future. But like I say, it, it's a shame to see it as a replacement for or a compensation for sales teams. I think this is a completely different department with different motivations, different objectives, but the value they bring is, is immense. And I, I don't think we've really started on the MSL journey. Although MSL teams have been around now for 30 or 40 years, depending on, on how you define them, I think this is the beginning of the MSL journey. I think that for the last 30 or 40 years, it's really been waiting for the opportunity to rise up out of, out of the shadows and, and really take a leadership role, particularly in launches. And I'm hoping we can come on to talk about how the MSL teams fit into the, the launch of, of products. Thanks for that, Matthew. And uh, you made a point that uh, MSLs is kind of uh, at the mercy of this discussion of uh, having reps on the ground and not having reps on the ground and how many reps. Why do you think that's the case? I had this conversation recently and, and, and where we got to was that the R&D function in a, in a pharmaceutical organization will create the product, essentially. I mean, with input from other departments, but the, the creation of a pharmaceutical or a biotechnology product sits with the R&D department and the marketing and the commercial departments will get it used and drive the uptake of that new medicine. And the question is then, how do you define what medical affairs and MSLs are doing? And where we got to is this phrase that they will get the medicine used in the right way. So finding the right position for that medicine, making sure it's being used in the right way, making sure that the value is maximized for that medicine, because nobody wants to see a medicine used widely, but the benefits to the patients not being that great. You'd rather find the perfect spot for that in a clinical pathway or in a particular patient group. So medical affairs and MSLs working together to make sure a medicine is used, yes, but secondly to that, used in the optimal way. And that might be at a certain point in a disease pathway, it might be in a particular subgroup of patients or however that turns out. But I think that's our remit. And I think that's where we can really break new ground as a department. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes I wonder whether some psychological factor, factors play play a role. Like, do we feel we are in control of some of these conversations? Are we shaping up the conversations in the right way if we don't have people on the ground and if doctors are not opening the doors to them, whether it's digitally or in person? So like, oh, okay, so we have in total 500 people talking to doctors. So we kind of put them in one bucket. And I know it sounds overly simplistic, but it kind of gives this feeling of if you're launching a product and it's like success or failure kind of binary situation, if you don't have access to doctors, you start to kind of freak out as a leader of the launch. So it's like, okay, they are talking to MSLs, but with reps, doctors are talking less. So maybe, and then you start to bucket them in one, one area. Sometimes we're thinking that maybe that even psychological factors like that play a role, but I don't have any proof to show that. I think you're right. I think there's definitely something there about moving away from the old way of doing things. I saw a slide once that somebody presented. It showed the reservoir dogs scene with everybody pointing a gun at each other's head simultaneously. And the gun was the sales force and, and nobody was prepared to put it down. Everybody wanted to put the gun down, but nobody was able to. And they struck a parallel there with the sales forces. And this was in the days of primary care sales forces, cardiovascular risk medicines, countries with thousands or even tens of thousands of primary care representatives. And this share of voice thing, the psychological fear of losing share of voice was, was overwhelming. Yeah, that was how the product products were launched like many years ago. It was, you know, focused on efficacy and have a big sales force and, and it worked. I mean, it worked. That's like a late 90s, early 2000s and 2000s. It really worked, especially primary care. Like you and I worked at Novartis and so Novartis was a leader in, in hypertension and then there was, there was diabetes, etc. So that was definitely a time where I think that number of sales reps, I think in the U.S., 
climbed to around 100,000 or more, and then it went to about 60 to 70,000. So it kind of find balance. And you had this mirrored sales forces and they're like three, three reps visiting the same doctor and all kinds of things. But it, it feels almost like an ancient past when I talk about it. And it's like 15 years ago. It's not like 50 years ago, but it does feel like ancient past. Which brings me to a provocative question. Do you think that there is a future with a digital launch only or no sales reps launch only? I know you share some of your thoughts on this topic on, on LinkedIn and sometimes you write posts in a way that provoke like conversations and, um, and I love those. So I was wondering where you stand on that provocative question. I think that the idea of a digital only launch has been around for some time. We've got numerous examples mixed picture of success, whether that's the right way to go. I think on LinkedIn, I can be provocative about sales forces, but I think the reality is more moderate than perhaps I would admit to. And that is, I think there's the space for everybody here that I think the launch optimization through using omnichannel through a much stronger medical affairs presence, a much earlier medical affairs and MSL capability on the ground. And, and of course, in the mix, marketing, market access, and sales forces. And I'm certainly not against sales forces. I think sales forces are going to be critical in the future. I'm very much supportive of moving away from very large sales forces, as we've just discussed, that that, that was the world I was born into when I started in pharmaceuticals. The days of primary care, mass market, cardiovascular risk medicines are gone. We're in a world now of specialist rare disease, gene therapies. We need smaller numbers of more experienced, more technical, better trained sales forces. But the future for me is a mixture of all of these things. And importantly, working together in orchestration, and that includes omnichannel. So the omnichannel piece becomes a player at the table. And how the different departments work with healthcare providers, prescribers, and other members of the healthcare community alongside their colleagues in different departments is, is the critical piece because we're all trying to achieve the same goal. We all have our different superpowers and the most effective way of doing this would be for each of us around the table from field medical, medical affairs, marketing, market access, commercial, and the omnichannel piece to be working very tightly as a team to make sure that happens. Yeah, sometimes I'm thinking of an experience working in other industries as well. And then the, the question of whether you have a person on the ground is really a question of what is the price margin of your product? Because having a sales force, like a human being, talking to a human being is the most expensive sales channel. If you think of that as a channel, it's the most expensive, right? So if you're selling something for $1, let's say a mobile app, like there's no way you can afford it. But if you sell something that it's $10,000 lifetime value per customer in different industries, then like that's a point where you can have a sales force. So I felt that because pharma always had a, a high profit margin. A lot of money, of course, is spent on R&D, but then once you have the product on the market, the margins are very high. So it's like there's a lot of room to, to have a sales force, plus discussions are more about science versus in other industries. So I always felt, okay, so, well, there is, there is room to have a sales force. Now, what I think, as we're talking about 2000s, then there was like way too many reps. And now the question is how to have those relevant conversations, like to your point with omnichannel and digital. So, yes. There's, of course, room for that human interaction, but in a more way that's more relevant, more targeted, more informed about doctor, what doctor has already watched or consumed online, where behavioral signs that they've shown that they're actually interested in having a conversation with, with the rep. 
One of the things that simplified it is, is, is an insight of the past months as we at Evermed are talking to, to different companies is this trend of content first, human interaction second. And we were just recently able to, to articulate that because, and then it dawned on me that honestly, you know, nowadays when you want to go buy a TV, you don't call a Samsung rep like or Sony rep. You actually go online, you educate yourself, you learn more about what type of TV do you want and all kinds of criteria. And maybe then you will talk to Samsung rep. And then as I was researching that, and again, nothing related with pharma, to pharma, I, was, I found that in today's world, 80% of decisions that we as consumers make are made without talking to a human being from another from a company. So I think like when was the last time you talked to a representative from a company man, and you've already bought a product? So we live in this world where, you know, want to make sure it's trusted, that it's good quality. We live in the world of reviews and everything is becoming more transparent. So in the same way, if you think about it, oh, how many products are actually prescribed by doctors before talking to a human being? So I started to think of that direction. So I, I don't have an answer right now, but if I have to pick, what would be your guess, by the way, on this? What percentage of product is prescribed before talking to a human being? Well, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting point. The problem we have always had as an industry is that we talk a lot about being patient-centric and prescriber-centric. Uh, we're not, we're very product-centric. And we think very, very deeply about our products about the data behind the products, about the benefit risk of our products. But our customers are not thinking about our products. They are thinking about a diagnosis and a problem that they need solved with a product. And they are working in therapy areas. So they are thinking about a range of products at any one time and thinking so hard about the products and the benefits of what our products can do is to miss the true problem, which is I have a patient in front of me and I have a problem for them that they need to solve. And your medicine may be one part of that. This laser focus on our products is detrimental to the relationship with the prescriber because they often aren't thinking along the lines of what our product is. What they want is a solution to an issue. But also, in many cases, they're dealing with a number of different diseases each day. And we're so laser focused on a particular subset of a disease in a particular indication, and we've got a product that will solve that issue. But once we leave the conversation with that prescriber, we don't even realize that the next conversation they have is about not just a different product, it's about a different condition altogether. And I think as, as an industry, this idea that we are focused on the patient has always been lip service. I think we really need to revisit our relationship with healthcare providers on that basis. Yeah, 100% agree. And, and really, you know, the word journey became a really big deal at some point. And it really starts with that, like respecting that journey of everyday clinician, which is, you know, busy, overwhelmed, but does want to stay up to date with new things. And he's asking themselves a question, let's say I'm a cardiologist, what's new in the area of cardiology? What do I need to know that's new? And then once I know what's new, What's the practical value of that? Like, how do I use it? And what else do I need to know? Is it safe? Is it efficacious, et cetera, et cetera. But only at that point, I'm interested to learn more about the product, right? After I learn like what's new in general and what are the guidelines and updates in guidelines and gaps in the guidelines and, and, and all that. And so that maybe then I'm interested in having a conversation on how to prescribe, what's the price, what's the reimbursement in the US, what's, you know, copay and prioritization and all that. But only then <laughs> I want to actually talk to someone because then I showing intent and awareness awareness of the product, awareness of the what's new, but also intent 
that I actually want to try it out. Maybe one or two patients, you know, now that I know maybe the label and all that. And the parallel I discussed earlier on about the how how far behind we were as an industry with Omnichannel is an interesting one. If you take the hospitality industry, go back 15 years, there was a huge drive to have an online presence. All the hotel chains, the individual hotels, they would build their own websites. They would invest very heavily in their web presence. But it soon became clear that most of their customers coming through aggregators, so lastminute.com or hotels.com, people wanted to compare what was available. And I saw a very interesting panel discussion with this just just last week or the week before, and it struck this parallel between hotels who invested heavily in their product, but ultimately realized that their customers were coming through a comparison website and ended up, therefore, investing much more in that comparison website. And that reflects the fact that their customers were not thinking, shall I go to this hotel? Their customers were thinking, I would like to go on holiday to Brighton on these dates. What are my options? And our customers are not thinking, should I prescribe drug X? Our customers are thinking, I have a problem with a patient who needs a treatment for a disease or an illness that they have. What are my options? What does the data look like? So I would fully expect in the coming years that after this wave of investment in our portal presence, HCP portals, websites, online information and omnichannel, we might well end up where the hospitality industry is now, which is everybody has their own web presence. But a lot of the investment is into some sort of aggregator where people can look at multiple different options, because what they're thinking about is a problem, not about a product. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's a great point. I, I know a lot of doctors in the US, especially you now use things like up to date, they're almost like uh, some, some use Wikipedia as well, but use up to date as a sort of, oh, what do I need to know? I have these two or three options in my mind, but I feel like I heard something about the fourth option. So let me check the up to date and see what's available because that becomes what we need to your analogy. It becomes sort of an aggregator of knowledge and helping someone make a better decision at a point where they're making a decision and are asking themselves question, not like product related, but rather solution focused, like solution to a problem that they have at hand. Great. I love the analogies always to other industries because I think that's also a way to innovation. I've seen that a lot of pharma companies in the past year have hired a lot of folks from other industries. That has been the case a little bit here and there, but now it's becoming massive even like a chief level roles. I know you're specialized also, especially the current company on uh, helping pharma companies launch in Europe. I'd say that they launch in US, but they don't have capabilities to do that in Europe. And there are many, many differences. So just on a high level, what do you think are the biggest differences or what's specific about launches in Europe versus anywhere else? I know it's a big question, but anything you can share on a high level would be great to know. Like what are the biggest challenges did, that pe people have when they try to do that? Yeah, the first thing to say is that the market dynamic has changed a lot in the last 10 years. We've already spoken about the primary care, blockbuster medicines, and this change and move away towards more specialists and rare diseases. That's created a real opportunity for particularly US-based pharmaceuticals and biotech companies to launch medicines themselves in Europe. I mean, prior to now, there is no American company that was small that would have the financial horsepower to undertake a primary care launch in Europe. The number of people you would need would make it 
far too expensive. But now you can land in Europe with a product in a specialist disease area and for much more modest investment, really penetrate the European market. So the market dynamic has changed, which creates a lot of opportunity. I've worked on the European side and on the US side. And the thing that makes me laugh all the time is that both sides assume that they're dealing with one market. Like everybody who's ever worked in Europe goes, oh, the US is just like one market. And of course, anybody who works in the US market knows how fragmented it can be within one country. But in the US, everybody says, oh, well, we have Europe. And the kind of the assumption there is, well, Europe's just this one big thing. The European regulatory side is very beneficial in that respect. It's essentially one country from a regulatory perspective. But after that, it's the Wild West again. You've got different reimbursement authorities. You've got different compliance and regulations in terms of the marketing of the product. You've got different healthcare systems and the structure of the different healthcare systems. So we work primarily in Europe. We work a lot with US businesses who are interested in a European launch and want to try and do that themselves rather than out-license their product in Europe. And one of the things we work a lot with is the differences in the European states and how you really need, as well as good oversight from a European perspective, because you should take on Europe in one go if that's what you want to do. But you do need to recognise that within that one region, the differences are quite significant. And uh, you do need specialist expertise in each of those different re each of those different countries within the European region. So let's say I'm a, to make that even more specific. So let's say I'm a biotech company. I have a new product that has analysts have forecasted to be more than a billion dollar peak sales, peak year sales. And then I have this dilemma. So I have a dilemma. Should I sign, let's say like, let me give an example of Biohaven, for example. Biohaven is a migraine drug. They're competing with Ambic in the US and they've done, according to the press, they had a really successful launch and they're expanding and they, from what I understand, are signing a deal or signed a deal with a big pharma. So why would, for example, a company like by having one or two products or 5.45 products or one product in the market, what would make them decide to launch on their own? Is there someone who can help them with like end-to-end -end commercialization, which is becoming you know, a big deal in the US? Or how do they make that decision? Like I know it's, again, it's a big question, but that's exactly the dilemma that those companies are facing right now. So the typical route would be, you've got your medicine, it's reached phase three and is in the regulatory filing phase, and you want to launch in the US, right? Every medicine launches in the US first. But quickly you're being pushed to answer the European question. What, what are we going to do in, in Europe? And traditionally, you've got two options. The first is out-license to large pharma. So maybe an upfront payment and a royalty stream, but you can't take that on yourself. There's no way you can raise that kind of funding to take on Europe yourself. The other alternative would be to partner with a business that can provide you with on the ground commercial and sales support and maybe a, a, some marketing as well, so that you essentially hand over the reins to somebody else uh, in, a, in a partnership. And you know, there's plenty of businesses that have been doing that for the last 20 years. The thing that's changed mainly in the last five years is the emergence of this third way. And I have heard what, what we do at Lucent as described as the third option. And that is you can keep your medicine to yourself. It can continue to be yours, but by working in partnership with smaller organizations in Europe, you can launch this product and keep a, a control of that revenue stream. And the reason for doing that has been posited as all sorts of different reasons. The one that comes up most is that this is your product. Why would you not keep control of it? And, and I get that. There is an emotional 
underscore to this. This is something you've spent a long time developing. You've had success in the US. Why would you want to hand this over to somebody else in Europe? What I see more and more is actually the strategic flexibility of partnering with a business like ours in Europe in terms of what your future options are further down the road. Going into an out-licensing relationship or handing over for European rights to somebody who will market this on your behalf is the way it has always been done, but it doesn't provide you with the strategic flexibility further down the line when you have a further launch. Do you then want to take that launch down the path of out-licensing or do you think you want to keep hold of that yourself? If there is an acquisition on the table, but the, the out-licensing has already been agreed with a major farmer, that can cause you some restrictions in that negotiation. So the thing that comes down so often in our, our discussions is that strategic flexibility, that you can achieve the same goals, keep control of your product, which emotionally most small businesses would like to do if they had the opportunity to, but the strategic flexibility of being able to enter into an agreement which subsequently isn't going to restrict your options further down the line. Yeah, it is good. I mean, I think this is this also one of the trends and one of the changes because in the past I felt like there are less options and now there are more options. And I think it becomes a real question that is one of those things that like I think Jeff Bezos calls it you know, level one and level two decision. When you make that decision, it's very hard to go back. So I think one of those decisions that requires research and finding the right partners if you want to keep the control and don't want to engage in a, in a deal with big farmer relying on what they have. It almost reminds me of how in the, in the world of startups and tech, there's always this debate whether you should raise, raise around with a, from a VC or you would bootstrap or you would find alternative sources to borrow money in order, like how much control you want to keep and, and what's ultimately better for the business, right? Because that's also another thing, right? what's ultimately better for the business. This has been a great discussion, by the way, Matthew, so far, really enjoying it. Hope you are too, and hope the listeners will enjoy as well. And for the very end, I have some rapid fire questions for you. And I'll start with, what's your favorite industry buzzword of the year 2022? I hear the word entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial used a lot at the moment. And, and the word has been around for a very long time, but I hear it used as a buzzword in pharmaceutical, particularly in large pharma at the moment. They want their staff, they want their associates to be more entrepreneurial minded. And I think what they mean by that is they want people to take risks. They want people to be ambitious in their thinking. They want people to operate in unusual ways and not to feel like they're being judged or that the risk of failure could undermine their career. So I think big businesses are looking for their people to really develop this entrepreneurial streak, businesses within businesses. So I hear that talked about a lot. Entrepreneurial guy. All right. And what's the best book you've read in the last 12 months? I read a great novel about it. It's not quite 12 months, maybe a little bit longer ago than that. It's called The Art of Hearing Heartbeats. It's a, a novel about a young boy growing up in Burma who's blind and who's subsequently life turns out in some very interesting ways. But it's a very moving book. I think it's a translation written by a chap called Jan Senka. I think he's German. Definitely an interesting title. Like I was like, wow, that's an amazing title. <laughs> like I don't know the books about it now. Check it out. What's your go-to song when you need some inspiration, lifting energy? I've been listening to a lot of, I think it's called neoclassical music. This is classical music that has been essentially remixed by modern day composers. There's a chap called Max Richter who I really like. He has remixed Vivaldi's Four Seasons. It just really appeals to me. So both as background music when I'm working, but also as a turn up the volume, get some inspiration. It's good. 
That's great. In uh, New York, where I live, there is this church on the Upper East Side where they have concerts every week. And there is like a pianist typically, and there's candles and a beautiful church. And inside there is a one hour concert. So they do Vivaldi and the gorgeous, beautiful settings. They would do like Coldplay just on piano. So I was recently, recently there. It's just phenomenal. What one sentence advice would you give anyone just starting out in the pharma industry? Can I only have one sentence? Yes. I would encourage anybody to explore. There are so many different interesting careers within pharmaceuticals. It's such a diverse industry. And if you are lucky enough to work in our industry and you start there and you have the opportunity to develop your career, just explore. And the people with the most interesting careers that I've seen are those who've moved from medical to marketing, spent some time in R&D, done some market access, gone up into senior leadership positions. So explore. Explore. Love it. You actually got it to one word. Explore. (laughs) It also makes it more fun, of course. And and last question, where can people find you online? LinkedIn is the primary place. I don't do a lot of online stuff. There's no social networks outside of LinkedIn. So Lucent Biopharma on LinkedIn, and I'm on LinkedIn as well, or email. All right. So it's uh, Matthew Goodman, Lucent Biopharma, where people can find you on LinkedIn. Yes. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest, Matthew. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation and we touched some of the sometimes in provocative, controversial topics, but some of the really real dilemmas that exist when it comes to launching of products and medical affairs, MSLs in the US versus Europe. So it's been a wonderful conversation and I look forward to our continuing conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.